0: When I talk about forgetting, there's a couple of ways to do this. And uh, one could look at it from the legal perspective. One could look at it from the cognitive psychology perspective. One could look at it from a sociological perspective. Um, What follows is about 35 minutes or so of um, one view of forgetting and the importance of forgetting. and it's less an academic presentation in the sense of, here's the problem, here's the methodology. Uh, here is my empirics, um, and here are my R- squares, um, and then you uh, have the results. A lot of them a meditation, if you want. So uh, with your permission, let us uh, try and meditate a little bit about uh, the importance of forgetting. So Stacey Snyder wanted to be a teacher. By spring of 2006 she had completed her coursework and was looking forward to her teacher's certificate. Then from one day to the next her dream was over. She was summoned by her university administration and told that she would not receive her teacher's certificate. She would not be a teacher she was told, although she had all the credits, passed the exams and completed practical training, she would not be given her certificate because her behavior was unbecoming of a teacher. Her behavior, a photo. Showing her with a cap and a cup, captioned, Drunken Pirate. Stacy Snyder had put this photo up on her MySpace webpage for her friends to see and perhaps to chuckle, but the university administration found the photo to be inducing minors to consume alcohol and thereby to be inappropriate for a teacher. When Stacy was confronted by the university administration, she considered taking the photo offline. It was too late. Her photo had been indexed by search engines and crawled by web archivers. As much as Stacy wanted the photo to be forgotten, the Internet would not permit that. Remembering instead of forgetting. Remembering. Forgetting. In 2001, Andrew Feltmark, a Canadian psychotherapist living in Vancouver, Canada, wrote an academic article for a journal. In the article he mentioned that he had taken LSD in the 1960s. In the summer of 2006, like many times before, Andrew Feldma wanted to cross into the United States to pick up a friend from the Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. The immigration officer Googled Feldma and discovered the academic article from 2001. Because Feldman had failed to disclose to the Immigration Officer, although he never denied it, that he had taken drugs 40 years earlier, he was barred from entering the United States forever. Remembering instead of forgetting. Of course, you'd say now, Stacey's and, Sny- uh, Stacey's and Andrew's cases are a tragic but, at least in part, because of their own fault. Had they not put the information online, Stacy would now be a teacher, and Andrew would still be able to enter the United States. Everybody has to decide for him or herself what to put online. What once, to paraphrase Friedrich Dernmann, has been put on the web is no longer forgotten. Really? Do we really know? Every time information about us is being collected, stored, and made accessible? Do you know that for the first decade of its existence, Google stored every single search query request it ever received? It receives about a billion a day. And every single search result you clicked on? Do you know, do you think that people know in the United States that when they fill in the local change of address form at their local post office, that information is not given to the post office, but sent directly to the direct marketing association. Do you know that in most states in the United States, and in many nations in Europe, there is no policy to delete DNA information that has been collected from people when they are victims or witnesses of a crime? Instead. The information is added and remains added to the DNA database and law enforcement authorities will run criminal searches against that information for decades to come, making potential suspects out of former victims, remembering, forgetting. For millennia of us humans, forgetting has been easy. It's built into us. Biologically, we forget most of what we experience every day, our feelings, our thoughts remembering as the hard part. Since the beginning of time, we humans, therefore, have tried to overcome that biological forgetting and to hold on to the memories that are precious. For thousands of years, we've tried, like this Navajo, to pass on our memories to our children in the hope that they, too, may thus be able to remember. This is how the great epics of the world came into being. But human memory is not fixed. It changes as we reconstruct our past. Depending on it is not sufficient, at least not when you want to remember something precisely or for a long period of time. Painting is one way of encapsulating visual impressions to create an external, more precise, and lasting memory, like this beautiful cave painting from Altamira. Script, originally developed by, would you believe it, accountants. Searching for a precise method of remembering has for millennia been humankind's preferred external memory. Language, painting, script, provided us with the capacity to remember through generations and across time. But these tools have not altered the fundamental fact that for us humans, forgetting is easy and remembering is hard, time-consuming and costly. The book did not change that, neither did the phonograph or film. Remembering remained expensive for most human beings and was thus chosen carefully. In other words, forgetting was the default, remembering the exception. This enabled us to deal with time. Through our physiological capacity to forget, we rid ourselves of excess memory. What has been long past fades in our mind. Thus we pay tribute to time and depreciate what is no longer relevant to our present. But because forgetting is biological, it's built into us, we humans never had to cognitively develop a capacity to deliberately forget, to depreciate memories and to make them fade. We can't force ourselves ourselves to forget. Today this is different. Google remembers, Yahoo remembers, Amazon remembers, the Internet Archive remembers. Flight reservation systems remember. Flight reservation systems, yes, they do. Even if you did not book the flight, they'll remember you looked at it six months. From Biological forgetting, therefore, we have moved to permanent remembering. How did this happen? You know this as much as I do. I don't have to step you through four elements, digitization first, advances in storage technology second, uh, in 1965 Gordon Moore, the Intel engineer, surmised that the density of integrated circuits might double every about two years. Importantly, as you can see here, storage density is tracking the impressive increase in processing power that Gordon Moore first witnessed about four decades ago. But storage alone is not sufficient. The East German Stasi, had hundreds of millions of facts in its files and almost a million of its citizens. Yet, with its elaborate systems of pseudonyms and codes and mostly paper-based files, it had difficulties retrieving the information it needed in time. This, too, is different today as full-text indexing, prohibitively expensive only a few decades ago, is now built into our user experience, so to speak, built into the desktop operating systems as well as built into the search engines we use to travel through the network. Add to this the ability to access information for a global infrastructure. A few minutes are sufficient to disseminate a document even accidentally and have it distributed around the globe. As this page, from the Manual of Operating Air Force One, which was made available online accidentally, for a few seconds. Once the mistake was realized, it was too late. This, by the way, is how you enter Air Force One, just in case you need to know. Taken together today, this has led to remembering becoming the default and to forgetting the exception. To an extent, this ought to be reason for celebration. Our vast and accessible digital memory offering numerous benefits from increased accuracy to improved efficiency to the promise to help us transcend human mortality. But at the same token, undoing forgetting has also consequences, consequences far beyond the narrow confines of efficiency. Two terms characterize, I believe, what truly may be at stake, power and time. Power is relative and relational. As information privacy scholars, like you, have long argued, power over information may translate into power over the individual the information pertains to. If others not only have information about us, but also the capacity to store that information and to keep it accessible long after we ourselves have forgotten about it, that might increase The power differential, the power that they have. And that has the potential to influence how we interact and transact. But power is not only dyadic. Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon is the concept of a prison, as you remember, uh, in which the prison guards can watch the prisoners without the prisoners knowing that they're being watched. The aim is behavioral compliance through the permanent threat of invisible surveillance. Oscar Gandhi and others have suggested that the internet may help create a panoptic a global panopticum, a digital panopticum in which everybody has to assume that she is being watched all the time. Such a panopticum, Gandhi suggested, may lead people to self censor fearing that the other answers could be misconstrued by any one of the hundreds of millions and thousands uh, of jurisdictions connected with it. If you think that is far-fetched, consider the case of Mr. Somm, the former regional CEO of CompuServe in Germany, uh, who was criminally investigated by the Bavarian law enforcement uh, agency for a Usenet file that CompuServe had mirrored on its um, servers in the United States that contained apparently child pornographic information. At that time, when song was apprehended, although he had no control over that information, of course, but he was still seen as responsible by the Bavarian uh, authorities. When uh, that happened, The Economist uh, published an op-ed with uh, titled if Bavaria wrinkles its nose, must the world catch a cold? Uh, that is the amount of, or that is the danger, of the encapsulation and the danger of self censorship. But today, I believe we face more than just Oscar Gandhi's global panopticon. Because a comprehensive digital memory, we have to assume that what we say or do online will not only be witnessed today, but will remain accessible for years, perhaps decades into the future. And so this creates a temporal panopticon in which we may self censor not because we are afraid of how others might interpret our words and deeds now, but because how people and institutions in the future might view them. My second concern is time, or more precisely, how we humans deal with time. As I mentioned, forgetting is biological, so we did not have to develop a cognitive mechanism to put different pieces of memory in a temporal perspective. So consider, ah, here we go, it's a hypothetical, as lawyers love hypotheticals. So consider the following hypothetical, Jane and John are old friends. Although they live in different cities now, they try to catch up at least once a year. One day, Jane receives an email from her friend John telling her that, she, that he is coming to town and wants to see her. Jane is excited and she hasn't seen her friend John and so wants to reply immediately to suggest a convenient venue to meet. To remind herself where they had met last time John was in town, she queries her mailbox folder. Up pop dozens of mail messages she had received from John over the years. She's quickly browsing through trying to find the right one But then her eye catches a 10-year-old email with a strange subject line. She starts to scan its text. Then, intrigued, she begins to read. Surprised, perhaps even shocked, she reads how John deceived her and revisits an angry exchange back and forth between them. Slowly the events and her feelings of that time, triggered by this concrete external stimulus, come back to her mind, her sense of betrayal and deception. She reads on about how over the following months and years, somehow she and John must have made up and reconciled, although exactly how and why the emails do not reveal. But at the forefront of her mind now is how John, her good friend, John, deceived her, and suddenly she is not so sure anymore. She wants to meet John when he's coming to town. As much as her analytic mind wants to disregard the revived memory, the angry words she reads triggers her remembering. They are the external memory that help us remember things we thought we forgot but they also may cloud our ability to evaluate and to decide. Put in more abstract terms, as cognitive psychologists remind us, for us humans, it is difficult to realize time as a dimension of change. That may trigger incorrect decision-making. In the analog times, that was true, too, but the dangers were limited. Our biological forgetting obscured our cognitive difficulties with time. But what when we are not able to forget anymore? We know a little bit about the consequences through studies of less than a handful of human beings who have biological difficulties of forgetting. This is AJ, a woman who has difficulties forgetting. Ask her about a particular day, she's able to tell you when she woke up, who called, and what was running on television for every day. 30 years ago. A.J. cannot forget, but to her it is not a blessing, it is a curse. She is haunted by the past so much, in fact, that it limits her ability, she says, to decide in the present. As Argentinian short story by the writer, Borges writes, perfect memory pushes humans to get lost in detail with no ability to generalize and to abstract and to evolve. They lose, Borges rights. what makes them truly human, Heeded to an ever more detailed past rather than living and acting in the present. This is the fate we may face with comprehensive digital memory. Through perfect digital memory, we also deny each other the capacity to change over time, to evolve and to grow. Without forgetting, it turns out it is harder for us to forgive. And so, comprehensive digital remembering may turn us into an unforgiving society. But there's another wrinkle to the story. What if, what if frustrated by the shortcomings of our own human recollection, we begin to disregard our human memory of our past and depend on digital memory instead? Does that give those that control digital memory the power to change history? And what guarantees that the memory that we capture in digital artifacts is authentic and complete? These are the threats of shifting the default from forgetting to remembering. So if you have followed me so far, I have achieved about 85% of my mission today. But then, of course, the question is what to do. So there are a number of responses, possible responses to this. One is, of course, a familiar one, namely the idea of privacy rights. The idea is fundamentally simple. By giving each and every individual a right to informational privacy, we empower that person to fight for her rights. Enforcement is beautifully decentralized and delegated. That sounds great. But it comes, unfortunately, with a few structural weaknesses. First, in the United States, the enactment of informational privacy, comprehensive informational privacy rights, is politically currently not feasible. But even if it were, I have my doubts whether that be effective. Consider the Europeans have enacted strong information privacy rights decades ago, starting in the early 1970s, as many of you know. But people have not used them. Whatever additional incentives the frustrated lawmakers offer the general public, and the history of the German Bundesdatenschutzgesetz is a fundamental uh, case in point. The directive, as well, by the way, no fault compensation, attorneys' fees, shifting the burden of proof—nothing really could change. The bitter reality that individuals in Europe do not seem to want to enforce their information privacy rights, at least not in courts. So if information privacy rights are not as effective as we'd like to, perhaps information ecology norms can help. That is the conscious regulatory restriction of what personal information can be stored and for how long. Such norms necessitate government action and the compliance and enforcement, therefore, may be costly. But they have also two advantages over individual privacy rights. First, they do not require individuals to go to court for enforcement, and second, they protect against an unforeseen and uncertain future. An uncertain future. Consider the case of the Dutch Citizen Register. Put in place in the 1930s for a perfectly benign purpose, to ensure the administration of social security, the register included information about ethnicity and religion. Once the Nazis had occupied the Netherlands, they raided the registry, repurposing the information in it to identify Dutch Jews and to send them to concentration camp. As a result, proportionally speaking, more Dutch Jews were murdered at the hand of the Nazis than those from France, Poland, or even Germany. Even Jewish refugees in the Netherlands fared better because they were not included in the register. It's a horrific lesson. As we cannot foresee our future And thus, how personal information about us will be used, it may be better to store less than more. This is the essence of information ecology norms. Unfortunately, since 9-11, we've seen a significant backlash on information ecology norms. Together with a wave of information retention norms. In addition to this pervasive rhetoric of fear and security, information ecology norms also go against another emerging dogma, public policy. Transparency. Transparency has become our society's preferred mechanism for ensuring good governance, both in the private and in the public sector. Requiring information retention and thus limiting the political chances for a expansion of information in, in order to address digital remembering. Perhaps, therefore, if those two known conventional responses are not sufficient, we need to augment them with some alternative ideas. So some have argued for digital abstinence. From staying away from the technical tools that enable digital remembering. Not sharing everything on Facebook, as President Obama reminded us, may certainly reduce the threat of digital remembering. But is it realistic, with over 600 million registered users worldwide on social networking sites, two out of three young Americans, two out of three young Americans are contributing to the sharing of information by uploading their own content? Is it realistic that they should stop doing that? So another option is the exact opposite of digital abstinence. The idea of full contextualization or to store digitally as much information as possible. That might sound off at first, but here's the argument. Perhaps the problem with digital memory is that it does not capture enough of an event in the past to let us relive it accurately enough. If we only could store everything about an experience or an event in the past, including all of the context, we could avoid the negative side effects of digital memory, in essence It would help us regain our ability to think in time, because we could beam us back in time. At its core, this is David Brin's proposal of a transparent society. But will full contextualization ever be technically feasible? (coughs) And if it will, how is it going to actually address the challenge of digital memory? Do we really have? The time available to relive all of our past again and again, only to grasp what experiences are no longer relevant for us today? That strikes me as odd. Well. Now, a third alternative is to hope for the cognitive adjustment of our society. That is to hope that over time we'll learn to devalue older information and to live in a world of the omnipresent past. Not society has to change or its laws, but our individual processing of information and its evaluation. That sounds right and when I went into this research that was my preferred solution. I thought that would solve our problem. Unfortunately, cognitive psychologists are quite skeptical of our human ability to force a change in how we evaluate and process information particularly when they are distant memories that we suddenly recall through an external stimulus of digital storage. They suggest that it may take us quite a long time to change the way we assess information, to modify what we have been doing for ages. And what would be the appropriate mechanism to effectuate such change? I hope this works, but I don't want to hold my breath. So, a different idea is not to change humans but to change technology. Lawrence Lessig has proposed, as Mel, as a number of others, to use technology to change behavior. We could create, he suggests, a quasi-property right to personal information, something like privacy copyright, and build that into our technology. So that the technology would ensure that only those can process my personal information who I have committed to do so. In short, the suggestion is to create a global digital rights management system to protect privacy. But do we really need to create a global technology infrastructure that watches every hour moves to ensure that nobody abuses somebody else's personal information? Would we not thereby create the perfect surveillance system to ensure privacy? That strikes me as slightly unorthodox. In order for that to not defeat its very purpose, we would have to build privacy very deeply into the infrastructure. A number of research um, results quite recently at Stanford, the University of Washington, and, and Princeton have pointed in the right direction, but a lot of structural fundamental hurdles remain for privacy DRM to actually work. So I presented you six possible approaches to deal with the challenge posed by digital remembering. Privacy rights and information ecology employ legal norms to tackle the challenge. Digital abstinence and cognitive adjustment hope that this could be achieved on a individual level. While privacy DRM and full contextualization mainly rests on the hope of the technological breakthrough. The three on the left target the power aspect of remembering. The three on the right are addressing the time challenge or more addressing the time challenge of digital remembering. None of these, as you can tell, offers a silver bullet to the Each one of them is helpful in their own unique way, in its own unique way. Hence. We may need to mix and to combine the six and perhaps even to add something else. Something else. are about 98% done, and I have only my two cents to add. My two cents are that I advocate the revival of forgetting. That is to establish individual, societal, legal and technical mechanisms that ease the forgetting in the digital age. And that make remembering just a bit more strenuous. Not by much, I do not want to overly burden remembering, but just enough to shift the incentives of forgetting and remembering back to what we humans are used to. So. If we want to reintroduce forgetting, how would we go about doing that? One version of this could be called expiration dates for information. It would simply imply that whenever we want to store information, we would not only be prompted to enter name and location of the file, but also a date until which we want that information to be stored. Once that date has been reached, the information would be deleted from our system. Of course, we could choose the expiration dates at will and change it any time. Please understand. Please understand. The core of my proposal is not the automatic deletion of information or the technical infrastructure to ensure compliance. This is not privacy DRM through the back door. The core of my proposal is Prompting for expiration dates will remind us humans again and again that most information is not timeless, but it's linked to a specific context and a specific situation. That it loses its value as time passes. And so expiration dates may offer a meaningful way to link digital memory back with time and implement a temporal dimension into digital memory. I want us to have a meaningful choice again of what to forget and what to remember rather than to have accept the implicit bias of digital remembering that is built into most of the digital devices that we use. I'm not suggesting expiration dates would offer perfection only a chance to reflect and to choose. Now, of course, this is where, for lawyers and engineers, the fund really starts. How are expiration dates negotiated in dyadic settings? How are they maintained? That is, how is compliance ensured once they have been set? Moreover, much of the mass acceptance of expiration dates, I am certain, will depend on user experience. How easy and straightforward is it, for example, to select expiration dates? or to change them. <coughs> Make no mistake, while helpful as an illustration, expiration dates also come with <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> a bag of weaknesses of their own. They are no silver bullet. They're not designed to solve the information privacy challenges beyond digital remembering. And perhaps most troubling from my perspective, expiration dates are still very binary in nature while human forgetting is much more gradual. Perhaps, therefore, we can over time develop systems of digital forgetting that are more gradual as well. Permit a kind of rusting of information. And also let us dynamically adapt expiration dates themselves as our preference as The time challenge I outlined earlier, but not the power challenge, I'm afraid, could be addressed at least to an extent by ensuring that, and that's another possibility, older and perhaps less relevant information would take a little bit longer to be retrieved so that we don't stumble over it and thus risk clouding our decision-making in the present. Remember the shoebox (coughs) in the attic. You still have the shoeboxes in the pictures and letters in them. And if you want to spend time with them, you can go up in the attic and open the box and look at them, although some of the letters and some of the photographs may have faded over time. But retrieving that information takes just a little bit more effort, more time, and thereby makes forgetting the default and remembering, including accessing information, the exception. That little bit of extra effort is what may help us stay focused on the present. There are many variants of digital forgetting, of reviving digital forgetting, but whatever version one can come up with, I believe two features are common or ought to be common to all. First, is that we need to change the default from remembering back to forgetting. Forgetting can be slow, can be gradual, can be reconsidered. But it needs to empower users to set forgetting as they desire. The second is that digital forgetting offers us a meaningful possibility to link temporal dimension with the information we commit to digital stories. So that it lets us reflect on the temporal nature of information and to choose. A revival of digital forgetting is used in combination with some of the other approaches that I sketched out earlier could, I believe, strengthen the effectiveness of our overall societal response to the challenges posed by time and power. forgetting, remembering. Since the beginning of time, forgetting has been easy for us and remembering hard. In the digital age, the relationship has become reversed. Today, digital remembering is the default and it is forgetting (coughs) that is often forgotten. I urge I urge to give back to forgetting the role it deserves let us remember to forget thank you